Welcome back to the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. This edition will be focusing on a recent United States Supreme Court case arising out of California and dealing with the question of whether the fact that a person suspected of having committed a misdemeanor has fled from the police into a home by itself will justify the police following the person into the home without a warrant. The name of the case is Lang versus California. And we are very fortunate to have the prosecutor who argued the case in the uh, trial court uh, in the appellate division of the the Superior Court of Sonoma County and who later filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court. Uh, That person is Sonoma County Deputy DA Robert Maddock. And uh, Mr. Maddock is going to join us in the studio to give us the benefit of his insight into the case. This IPG podcast will provide 75 minutes of general MCLE credit. So, Robert, thanks for uh, driving down from Sonoma County. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know you've been living and breathing this case for three years, but how did you first get involved in the case of Lang? Well, I had our Writs and Appeals unit, and we handled uh, some of the initial briefing for the motion to suppress, and then also two separate appeals in our appellate division. Okay. So you're very familiar with the case. Uh, Perhaps you could tell us some of the relevant facts that gave rise to the case of Lang in the California courts. Sure. So Mr. Lang was driving on Highway 12 in Sonoma County, which is a main uh, cross-county artery that goes east and west. And he was driving at about 10, 10 on a Friday night. And as he was driving, he had his windows down with music blaring, and he was just randomly honking his horn as he drove by a CHP officer who was parked on the side of the road. This caught the CHP officer's attention. He pulled out onto Highway 12 and began to follow. He did not initially turn on any uh, lights or even try to catch uh, immediately up to uh, Lang's vehicle. Um, As he pulls onto the highway, his video starts um, because he would later turn on his lights that triggers the the in-car video. So we we get to see a a MVARS, which is the in-car video for CHP officers, basically from the start uh, of the what's a relatively short pursuit. Uh, The officer pulls out onto Highway 12. Uh, There are a couple cars in between uh, his car and Lang. But we see that Lang turns off of Highway 12 and takes a right, and the CHP officer also follows him. The the road that Lang turned onto was kind of a semi-rural road, not not a normal residential street. Um, So it didn't have a lot of lights. And there was no other traffic on the, the roadway. So in the distance, you see Lang's uh, taillights as the officer begins to catch up, again, still without lights on or, or emergency lights on. Uh, then we see Lang's vehicle take a left onto an even smaller street as the CHP officer is catching up, who also takes a left. And shortly after taking the left, Lang slows down to almost a stop in the middle of the street. And this was an area unfamiliar to the CHP officers. I mean, he wasn't sure where he was or what was going on. When Lang almost stops, the officer pulls in right behind him. But the Lang, Lang starts rolling forward again. And as soon as he does that, the officer uh, turns on his emergency lights, which are very clear in the video. 
However, Lang goes just a short distance forward and then takes an immediate right turn, kind of driving up a, a driveway at a bit of an angle. And as he pulls up with the officer right behind him, you see that he pulls into a garage where the garage door is just finished opening. And as soon as he pulls into the garage, he hits a button that causes the garage door to start coming back down. The officer gets out of his CHP car, um, basically pulls up to the garage, gets out, and you see him on the video just walk forward and wave his foot underneath the garage door. And that triggers the automatic mechanism, safety mechanism for the door to go back up. You then see in here the officer take just a step or two into the garage, and he says, didn't you see me behind you as Lang is opening his door? And you hear Lang say no. Uh, what you also hear is even just in that audio, you can tell that Lang is impaired. And as he starts to get out of the vehicle, you can tell he's wobbly. At that point, uh, the, the video ends shortly after that. But what happened next is the officer asked Lang to, well, first of all, he mentions that he uh, smells the odor of alcohol and asked him to step out of the garage. So very quickly moves Lang out back into a, the driveway where he conducts FSTs. And that quickly revealed that Mr. Lang was highly impaired. Um, Lang did not uh, agree to a PAS test, a preliminary alcohol screening. Um, subsequently, uh, the officer, in, in about an hour, was able to get a blood draw, and that came back with a 0.245. Okay, so based on those facts, uh, was Lang charged with uh, driving under the influence? He was. He was charged with both the A and the B counts, plus a high blood alcohol uh, allegation. He was also charged with a prior because he was actually on probation for a DUI at the time. Um, and then he was also charged with the infraction uh, for a noise violation, which is vehicle code section 27007. Okay. So we know that after he was uh, – the defendant was charged, he ends up trying to file a motion to suppress the evidence. Uh, what was the defendant actually seeking to, to suppress? Well, this was one of those motions to suppress we often get that really doesn't say much. It was about two pages and he merely asserted that the warrantless entry – uh, into the home uh, should result in uh, exclusion of all evidence and statements of the defendant. Okay. And so what was the what was the theory of the defense argument as to why all this evidence should be suppressed? Well, initially, the argument was uh, essentially an entry into the garage, which is entry in the home without mm -hmm. a warrant. So – and he cited Beck v. Ohio and then later argued some other points in the trial court. Um, he modified his argument somewhat during the hearing to emphasize uh, essentially that it was a forceful break-in because of the officer waving his foot, breaking a beam of light, which um, seems somewhat uh, funny, frankly, uh, <laughs> as an argument of using force. Um, but he also brought in a private investigator who had gone to the home, taken photographs and measurements of the driveway in order to claim that Lang had actually not been able to see the officer behind him. However, Lang did not testify, so there really was no evidence to support that other than the uh, investigator's photographs and diagrams. All right. So the, did the argument of the defense that the evidence should be suppressed fly in the, fly in the trial court? It did not. The judge denied the motion um, without really much comment. Um, her, her main comment, uh, because part of the argument had to do with that the officer failed to actually uh, initiate the stop earlier and had not had his lights on behind Mr. Lang. Uh, she said that didn't 
really matter so much. It was the officer's discretion. And with that, she basically said um, motion denied. All right. So the stop itself was was not for DUI. I mean, it was originally for just uh, some sort of traffic violation? That's correct. So the the officer initially began to follow based on the, the two violations, which were both infractions. Okay. Um, however, once the officer uh, initiated the traffic stop and, and started uh, his emergency lights, uh, which from the video are very clear that they would have been visible to Lang, um, and Lang continued going, uh, that actually developed probable cause to arrest for both a violation of Vehicle Code Section 2800 for failure to yield and Penal Code Section 148A1 for resisting, delaying, and obstructing arrest. Okay. Now, he wasn't charged with uh, a, a 2800 or a PC-148, correct? That's correct. He was not charged with either of those offenses. But that was the, the theory under which the, the the prosecution sought to justify – the officer's entry into the garage? That's correct. That at the time that the officer uh, got out of his vehicle and uh, waved his foot under the garage door triggering it to go up, he had probable cause to arrest for both of those offenses. All right. And uh, because he had probable cause, why did why did that make a difference? Why, why was the officer allowed to go into, under your theory, why was the officer allowed to, to enter the garage? Well, under longstanding California precedent, uh, which was People v. Lloyd, that's a uh, 1989 case, uh, 216 Calap 3rd, 1425, um, there was, uh, well, Lloyd stands for the proposition that even a, for a traffic infraction, uh, the subject may not thwart the attempt to detain or arrest the person by fleeing into a home. And the officer may, it, it was essentially a, a categorical, categorical exception or exigency to allow the officer to enter. And this was based uh, largely on United States v. Santana. So even though the, the offense itself uh, was, a, was a misdemeanor, I mean, that the idea that the person was fleeing was just a misdemeanor, uh, the lower court uh, in the superior court as well as um, the appellate division held that entry was proper. That's right. And that, again, that was based on longstanding California precedent. All right. So after that, did the defendant uh, file an appeal? Well, first, uh, the motion was denied in the trial court. He filed an initial appeal under 1538.5 J to challenge the motion to suppress or the denial of the motion to suppress. So that first went to the appellate division of the Superior Court who affirmed, and as I mentioned, they cited People v. Lloyd uh, as uh, authority for the officer to take the action that he did. And that to, was that was the case where you argued? And okay. that was, yeah, that was handled by our unit and, and I did handle that case, yes. So after the... Uh, the appellate division affirmed the defendant uh, through counsel. He was represented by private counsel throughout. Uh, he did enter a plea to the B count, 23152 mm -hmm. paren B for driving over 0.08, um, admitted the uh, prior conviction, and he was sentenced to probation and jail. After he pled, he then filed another appeal, this time challenging the conviction. Um, but in the appeal, he again only challenged 1538.5. And I'll say this was a, a learning experience for me. I uh, filed a motion to dismiss under uh, res judicata and law of the case doctrine. 
And the appellate division denied that motion. And that was because essentially 1538.5M does say that notwithstanding a prior uh, challenge that the defendant may challenge again. I had argued that the uh, appellate division had decided the exact issue here, mm-hmm. and our appellate division rejected that argument, citing People v. Medina, which is a 1972 case at 6 Cal 3rd 484, and People v. Hallman, 1989 case at 215 Cal 3rd 1330. Okay. Now, did the defendant eventually seek review in the California Supreme Court? Yes. After he was again – after the appellate division again affirmed the 1538.5, first he sought transfer in the appellate division who denied transfer. Then the the, – he filed in the court of appeal and the first district did grant uh, transfer and they also affirmed on similar grounds. All right. And after they uh, affirmed – on similar grounds, that's a, that resulted in the published decision, right? Yeah. Well, actually, it was an unpublished decision okay. by the first district. So, and then, um, and and they did note one, I think, different uh, aspect is they did find that uh, Mr. Lang either knew or should have known that the officer was behind him. So they they did make that additional point, which we really didn't address in the appellate division. Um, after the first district. Uh, affirmed, uh, Lang filed a petition for review in the California Supreme Court, which was denied. All right. Now, uh, after his petition uh, was denied in the California Supreme Court, it sounds like a lot of courts were not having any of his argument. Uh, Did he seek review in the United States Supreme Court? He did. They filed a uh, petition for cert and Mr. Lang's attorney uh, got the assistance of the Stanford School of Law Supreme Court Clinic who essentially prepared the petition and uh, got a lot of support from the defense bar um, to get it before the United States Supreme Court. And at this point, um, the attorney general's office who had handled the appeal in the first district, um, they took – changed their stance a bit and they took a position um, arguing against granting cert um, but noting that they would essentially join the defense on the question presented uh, to the Supreme Court if the petition was granted. So let me back up. What was the actual uh, question that was presented upon which the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert? So the – The question presented was, does pursuit of a person who a police officer has probable cause to believe has committed a misdemeanor categorically qualify as an exigent circumstance sufficient to allow the officer to enter a home without a warrant? So what was the AG uh, position? I mean, uh, was there arguments being made that, hey, regardless of whether or not it always – flight from an officer always qualifies as an exigent circumstance – uh, or whether or not it has to be viewed on a case-by-case basis, did the, the AG didn't argue, hey, look, you should uphold this under either analysis. Uh, why didn't they just say that, you know? Well, um, that's it's still a question in my mind uh, why the attorney general took the position they did. Some have said it was uh, political. Some uh, – think there was a change in policy and also just by the way the question was presented. Okay. But what they did do is they uh, they sided with the petitioner, Lang, in that uh, 
they argued against a categorical rule and that misdemeanors often are low-level offenses and therefore there should not be a categorical rule. They did uh, argue that the decision of the first district should be vacated and it should be remanded there to consider it on a case-by-case basis. So their position essentially was it should be a case-by-case type of analysis. Okay. So just so it's clear, when it gets up before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the position of the defense as well as the position of the attorney general is that it's not categorical. In other words, the position that the Court of Appeal took and you took was that anytime there is a suspect who flees and into a home and they suspect it's a misdemeanor offense, they get to go in, period, without any other special finding being made. It's treated just like a fleeing felon. The position taken by the defense was that, no, it, it's not automatic. Yeah, in, in fact, the, the petitioner went a step further. First of all, they said Santana did not establish a categor- categorical rule at all for felonies, that there was no such thing essentially as, as felony hot pursuit, um, which I think everybody else agreed was in- incorrect. Um, the, the attorney general took the position um, that, again, there should not be a categor- categorical rule for for misdemeanors, um, but it should be case by case. Um, And that left essentially both sides on the the same side of the V, which makes it a problem with the case because there must be, you know, the people versus someone or someone versus someone. And we ended up with uh, essentially a a blank on one side of the uh, case. All right. So uh, given that the AG sided with the defense, uh, what did the high court do? So the given the unusual posture of uh, both the petitioner and respondent essentially agreeing on the question presented, the uh, United States Supreme Court invited uh, private attorney Amanda Rice out of Michigan um, to both brief and argue in support of the judgment below. Now, did you assist that attorney? I did. And actually, it was a a very great experience. She was a a very experienced uh, litigator in the Supreme Court, had previously been a Supreme Court law clerk. um, But she really knew nothing about California criminal law. Um, So uh, we did have several meetings, uh, phone conferences, and a lot of emails uh, sharing thoughts and um, concerns basically from the California standpoint. And one of the, the key points there was the issue with wobblers in California because we have a penal code that has many, many offenses that may be either felonies or misdemeanors. And that uh, poses a very significant problem with the application of a rule that does not allow uh, misdemeanors but does allow felonies for hot pursuit. Okay. Well, the, the idea being that, hey, uh, if you have a crime that could potentially be a misdemeanor or potentially be a felony, uh, what rule applies in, in that circumstance? Do you, do you use the categorical rule when it's a fleeing felon or do you use the, sort of the case-by-case analysis when it's a misdemeanor? Exactly. It creates a lot of problems. It also creates the problem of you know, when is that determined because in California, the prosecutor has discretion to file it as a felony, but a judge has the discretion to reduce it pursuant to 17B to a misdemeanor at preliminary hearing. So you know, when do we consider it the felony or misdemeanor? 
And, uh, well, there's, I'll just say there's a lot of unanswered mm -hmm. questions there. All right. So what did the high court, or at least the majority opinion, hold regarding whether the flight of a suspected misdemeanor will always justify a warrantless entry into the home under the hot pursuit exception? Well, I think it's very important to understand really what they said and what they did not say. And what they did say is that it is not – essentially they did not – uh, agree it should be a categorical rule. It should be on a case-by-case -case basis using traditional kinds of rules. They also emphasized that there generally needed to be something else. And it, I was using the term a co-exigency. So that would be the potential for loss of evidence, further flight. Um, you know, if the person runs out the back door after running in the front door, uh, harm to others, that sort of thing that are part of the traditional exigencies um, that are exceptions to the warrant requirement. So in other words, under the current rule, uh, if it's a misdemeanor offense that they are – that they've committed and the officer has probable cause to believe they committed and is, is seeking to arrest him for that offense, uh, the flight of the suspect alone does not create the exigency. There must be something in addition. Exactly. That's what the majority held. And I, I will point out, though, they did note that um, many times, if not most times, uh, that would actually be the case, that there would be those additional factors, just not in every case. So what was their rationale? Why did they come to the conclusion – why did the majority come to the conclusion that they did? Well, they did look as they uh, will always do at the traditional views, um, the – uh, common law, what was permissible, um, uh, you know, at common law, uh, and and prior case law, and what they essentially came to is that at common law, what would now be felonies um, generally would permit uh, a constable to break the door open and enter a home. So that would be for an affray, um, a risk of grave wounds to someone inside. And in, in today's, you know, sort of modern parlance, we might say, you know, in sort of a DV situation where there's the possibility that someone's continued to be injured um, or possibility of uh, you know, more fighting or something inside, um, that would be kind of an analogy to the traditional rule. Um, but minor offenses – uh, they found would not qualify. All right. Now, so unless you have some of these additional exigent circumstances, and assuming there's time to obtain a warrant, the officer has to obtain the warrant. That's exactly it. That uh, unless there's really an articulable reason that the officer does not have time under the circumstances to get a warrant, uh, then the officer must get a warrant. So – if an officer is pursuing someone who has just fled from them uh, and there's a, now a misdemeanor violation in 148 or Vehicle Section 2800, what uh, must the law enforcement officer articulate in order to enter the home uh, without a warrant in pursuit of the fleeing suspect? Yeah, the officer under under the new rule or the clarification of the rule, as some might say, under Lang, the officer needs to articulate something else. And I would just as a practice point mention um, 
you know, part of what uh, in any kind of motion to suppress hearing people should be doing is to actually asking the questions about how long does it take to get a warrant? Um, those are going to be relevant factors. You know, what are the steps? In, in Lang, this was 10-10 at night. Uh, there would have been an on-call deputy DA who would have had to review it first, would have been an on-call judge who had to review it. That would have uh, added a lot of time. Um, so uh, the in order to show that exigency, I think the first step is also to include the length of time it would get uh, take to get a warrant under the circumstances. And then what are the other factors? Was there you know, evidence of a DUI? Well, a DUI will almost always have uh, loss of evidence as part of the blood alcohol okay. dissipating. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, okay. a bit, a little bit later. But what sort of fact, so, so what sort of factors would an officer need to articulate to explain why they didn't get a warrant and why, why what sort of situations create the circumstance that allows the officer to enter into the home. Yeah, so I, I think some of that is still going to be decided, but it's basically uh, the traditional kinds of factors. Is there a risk of harm to someone? Is there a risk of loss of evidence? Um, you know, if it's a drug case, is the person going to run in and, and flush it down the toilet? Um, is there a risk of someone fleeing out the back? Uh, those kinds of concerns where the officer must act quickly and there is not time to get a warrant in order to stop the defendant from uh, either further escaping, destroying evidence, or other types of things like that. So as you kind of alluded to earlier in our discussion, you know, if someone is fleeing, they are likely to escape. They are likely to discard evidence. Uh, they can avoid identification, and they're likely to threaten the safety of others. So in essence, won't there always be existent circumstances when someone flees a police officer? Yeah, one would think that's uh, often going to be the case, and, and they you know, conceded as much in the opinion. And we'll get to it in a little bit, but the Chief Justice really emphasized that as well in his concurrence. But yes, I think in, in most cases, I mean, people don't flee a traffic stop generally unless there's something else going on. They either have a warrant, they have narcotics or weapons in the car. Uh, you know, I've seen cases where a DV victim is a passenger in the vehicle and the driver doesn't want the person to – uh, you know, make a statement to the officer, et cetera. So those are the kinds of um, concerns uh, that I think are going to be very common in that kind of flight situation. So, so Robert, how did the majority of the high court square its decision with its with the earlier decision in the United States versus Santana? Now, that, that was a case where they upheld an entry into a home where officers with probable cause to believe the defendant was dealing drugs entered the defendant's home in hot pursuit after the defendant retreated into the home upon seeing the police. Didn't Santana create an automatic rule, essentially, allowing entry when in hot pursuit of a fugitive or a fleeing suspect in all circumstances? Well, certainly a lot of courts did read Santana that way. Um, and I think that's part of the problem with, with the lack of clarity in, in Santana because, first of all, it never addressed the level of offense in its analysis. The analysis in Santana was essentially that a lawful arrest initiated in a public place could not be thwarted by the person to – essentially dash into their home uh, as a, a way to um, basically thwart the arrest. So the 
Supreme Court in Lange, frankly, I think they, they did not do a very good job of addressing that. But they did distinguish the lower level type of offense. Of course, they emphasized um, the traditional uh, view of the home as being the most protected location mm-hmm. and the, the chief of all evils uh, for law enforcement to, to violate. Um, <clears throat> so essentially – they asserted that Santana did not create a categorical rule uh, as to all offenses. Uh, it, it was limited to just the felonies. Yes, because okay. even though not specifically addressed, it was a felony case and it was uh, addressing felony conduct. And they also pointed to Stanton v. Sims' uh, 2013 civil rights case where they noted that there was no clearly established authority regarding whether an officer could enter uh, essentially for hot pursuit of a misdemeanor. And so they wanted the opportunity to clarify yeah, I remember that, that that Stanton case. That was the situation where an officer goes is, is chasing someone for a, a misdemeanor offense, and he goes into the backyard of, of an individual, and I think he knocks that individual down when they enter into the backyard. And uh, the Ninth Circuit had said, "Well, that's a violation." Uh, and then the U.S. Supreme Court, when they took it up, said, hey, no, we haven't decided that issue. We're, we're granting that officer qualified immunity. Exactly. Because there was no, as they said, no clearly established rule. All right. So, Robert, there, there were three concurring opinions in this case. And I'd like to talk briefly about those concurring opinions before we move on to a set of questions that will arise in light of the holding in Lang. Uh, because I, I, I really think that those opinions will help provide some guidance as to how to answer some of these questions that are left outstanding. So the first opinion I'd like you to talk about is the concurring opinion of Justice Roberts. In essence, what was what was the position taken by Justice Roberts and how did this differ from what the majority uh, thought about the case? Yeah, well, it's, it's very interesting because I think uh, when most people read it, they would read it as a dissent um, because he clearly sharply disagrees with the majority. But really, uh, what he says is essentially all true hot pursuits uh, justify and create – they themselves are the exigency that uh, allows for the warrantly, warrantless entry into the home. So in other words, the flight itself is an exigency by itself. Exactly. OK. So that's completely contrary to what the, the majority said. Exactly. OK. So – and then he noticed that um, – Essentially, he, he did treat it as a concurrence because he agreed the matter should be uh, vacated and reconsidered. But it really uh, had more to do with whether the, the case fell into the general rule, as he would call it, that it, the flight itself created an exigency. But also um, in his discussion about about what really qualifies as a hot pursuit, um, that really essentially it has to be hot. Okay. Um, so one of the things we – again, we've kind of alluded to before, but perhaps it needs to be highlighted. Is, is, is there really going to be any actual difference between using the approach that was advocated by the majority and using the approach that was advocated by uh, Justice Roberts in his concurring opinion? Well, I, I think the majority uh, puts the onus on the government to show the coexisting exigencies. Well, the Chief Justice's approach essentially puts it more on the defendant to demonstrate that it's an unusual case that falls outside the general rule. 
Now, Justice uh, Kavanaugh also filed a concurring opinion. Uh, what was the gist of that opinion? Well, essentially, he asserted that there was little daylight, as he put it, in practice between the majority and the chief justice's approach. He explained that uh, that was because cases of fleeing misdemeanors will almost always also involve a recognized exigent circumstance, such as risk of escape, destruction of evidence, and harm to others, just as was essentially conceded by the majority, although, again, they <laughs> again said that it must be a case-by-case analysis. All right. And finally, Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion. What, what was the gist of Justice Thomas's opinion? Well, that was an interesting concurrence because he emphasized and asserted that the exclusionary rule, which of course is a judicially created rule um, to essentially enforce or, or get compliance with Fourth Amendment uh, rules of law enforcement, um, he said that the ex- exclusionary rule, or at least the federal exclusionary rule, should not apply in any uh, hot pursuit type of case. And essentially, it's it's a concept of uh, the, the wrongdoer should not benefit from his wrongdoing. And so even if the officers uh, later were found to have made an error in their pursuit into a home, the evidence that's discovered should not be suppressed. Okay. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about that later because I know that may be uh, a viable path on when when the case gets remanded. Well, it's already been remanded, but once they start arguing it, that might be a uh, type of analysis that might be interesting to read and might up result in the case ultimately coming to the same conclusion that there was no violation of the Fourth Absolutely. Amendment. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. In the meantime, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Under the majority's case-by-case analysis, what type of situation involving the hot pursuit of a misdemeanor would not create an exigent circumstance? Well, I, I think that – I think we could kind of speculate on a lot of different situations. But there are actually a couple of cases that talk about um, you know, what – sort of fact patterns this might apply to. One is Carol v. Ellington. It's a Fifth Circuit case, 2015. That's at 800 F. 3rd 154. In Carroll, uh, a police officer observed a, a man uh, acting oddly uh, near a, uh, I believe it was a mailbox. Um, the officer uh, Essentially, there had been uh, prior complaints about people messing with mailboxes. So when the officer noticed him, uh, he drove past. He turned the car around and drove towards the subject, uh, who was named Barnes. Uh, He made eye contact with the subject. And then the subject, Barnes, immediately walked away in a hurried manner and uh, went essentially opened up a garage door, a manual garage door, and entered. Uh, the officer said that he had been uh, made suspicious that Barnes was either vandalizing the mailboxes or selling narcotics or drugs. Um, so he decided to stop to speak to him to ascertain if he lived in the neighborhood and if he had any business with those mailboxes as well. The deputy, uh, he had followed him to the residence and stopped his patrol car. And the deputy noticed that there were a different set of mailboxes there, which increased his suspicion that the uh, that Barnes had been messing uh, with mailboxes that weren't his. So when he contacted him, 
uh, to ask him his address and what he was doing by the, the mailboxes, Barnes was unable to answer the question uh, about his address, insisted he was from California, and then <clears throat> I'd note the, the officer was not aware at the time that Barnes had mental illness issues, but the uh, Barnes then turns, opens the garage door, and enters a house. So the officer didn't know if that was his house, uh, still wasn't sure uh, if he had been vandalizing uh, mailboxes, etc. So uh, Barnes followed, or the officer followed Barnes in. Uh, uh, So in in that circumstance, and this is a case that is specifically mentioned by the the majority opinion. Now, interestingly, the the case is a, a civil suit. It so is. it's it's the relatives of the person who was followed. Unfortunately, this is a case where the, the person was followed. Once they got inside the house, the, the, the things completely break down and, and the person ends up uh, dying. But there's a civil suit from the survivors. And in that civil suit, the, the, the reviewing court found that the officer was entitled to qualified immunity. For following the, the, the suspect in. But I, I suspect that the U.S. Supreme Court, they cited this not for the, the ultimate conclusion, but they cited it for the idea that, hey, this is the kind of minor offense where there's no indication that the person necessarily is going to harm someone else or is has any evidence on him or is going to escape. And... Uh, so that's why they, 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 they cited it. I know they also cited another case uh, called Mascoro versus Billings, which uh, also was a civil suit where the – actually the relatives of the person who was followed into the house uh, attempted to sue the police. So what happened in, in, in this case of Mascaro versus Billings? Well, Mascaro and, – and, and I'll back up a moment and, and mention that in the petitioner's brief, they provide a, a list of horribles, as I would say, of, of just you know, sort of cherry-picking cases around the nation of um, essentially bad facts making bad law uh, where very minor offenses triggered uh, what might be deemed an overreaction by law enforcement. And Mascaro is a good example of that. So in Mascaro, uh, there was a peace officer who uh, observed a 17-year-old drive by him. It was 1130 at night and the vehicle didn't have taillights. Now, this deputy actually knew who the person was, was familiar with him and was a neighbor. So this was not some unidentified person and nor was it any kind of significant offense. The, uh, he tried to pull the uh, 17-year-old over uh, who did not stop. He drove two blocks to his parents' house, ran inside and hid in the bath- bathroom. The deputy then uh, went – basically went to the house and <laughs> demanded that someone come out um, essentially uh, – he was – as the case says, he was enraged, swearing, threatening and ordering someone to come out, uh, open the door and come out. Uh, and then when someone did come out, he drew a gun and pointed at – this was the father – and ordered him to his knees. And uh, essentially the situation got out of control. The officer ends up pepper spraying people. Other officers arrive. Um, they go in to where the 17-year-old has locked himself in the bathroom 
Um, when they ordered him to come out and he didn't come out, they kicked in the bathroom door and took him into custody. So this really turned from a minor offense into a very significant law enforcement response, including use of uh, threat of force, actual pepper spraying, kicking in doors, etc. All right. So did the Tenth Circuit find that uh, the entry was justified under the exigent circumstances slash hot pursuit exception? They did not. Uh, they actually – uh, they pointed out several important facts, uh, one of which was that the officer was well acquainted with the subject, also that the house had no other exits. So unlike the uh, situation in Lang and a lot of cases we would see, there, there's no real um, concern that the person has continued to flee. And the fact that the person was identified – and the underlying offense was very minor. The level of, of, of uh, force used by the officer in entry um, went beyond what was reasonable. Yeah, and in, in some ways, uh, although uh, this case was cited by the majority as an example of a case in which it wouldn't be appropriate to apply a categorical rule, that this is why the case-by-case -case analysis makes more sense so that uh, just because someone fled doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a violation of the Fourth Amendment if an officer uh, followed in uh, to the home. But what what's nice about this case is if you have a, a situation where you're arguing that an officer properly followed into a home under exigent circumstances, that these additional exigent circumstances existed, this case is uh, a, a case where you can use sort of the obverse – factual situation to argue that there's exigent circumstances. I mean, here, you know, there was no risk uh, of, of an escape. There was no exit for the person to leave the house. In most cases, that's not going to be the situation. Exactly. Uh, in, in most cases, there is going to be some evidence that might potentially be destroyed. In most cases, there is going to be some sort of situation where there are no officer of public safety concerns. All factors that this court looked at in deciding that because they were absent, there wasn't a basis for following the, the suspect. Exactly. So that's the kind of case you can use as sort of the outer limits to show what, what your case is not. Now, not all pursuits – are necessarily hot pursuits. Sometimes these, these hot pursuits are called fresh pursuits. But regardless, did Lang alter what constitutes a hot pursuit or a, or a fresh pursuit? Well, I, I, I think uh, the majority opinion didn't get into as, as much, but the Chief Justice did clarify it, and I, and I think it's useful. So in the Chief Justice's view, um, a hot pursuit really needs to be exactly that. It needs to be hot. Um, as, as he notes, it doesn't need to be reminiscent of the opening scene of a James Bond film, which certainly would be <laughs> a, a hot pursuit. Um, but it not, must be some sort of chase. So uh, when we look at some of the other cases uh, other than Santana of U.S. Supreme Court cases, um, generally – you know, there must be that kind of fresh or hot pursuit that the officer is actually chasing the person, not um, that they learned about an event somewhat recent in time and then went to the house and tried to enter. Um, so it must be an actual chase. The pursuit must be immediate or continuous. And the suspect should have known – well, essentially there should be evidence that the suspect knew the officer intended to stop him. So – 
<clears throat> that would be distinguishable, for instance, from a consensual contact where the uh, person is in a voluntary conversation with law enforcement and decides to end it and walk into their house. That would not constitute flight. Okay. Now, uh, earlier we discussed the previous Supreme Court decision in Santana. Did the Lang decision alter the rule that an officer may enter a home without a warrant when in hot pursuit in every case when the person is going to be arrested for committing a felony? So Santana – I'm sorry. Uh, Lang itself did not directly alter that rule. But I do think it leaves open argument uh, for a creative defense attorney um, in a case – uh, you know, as, as was briefed in Lang, there are you know dangerous misdemeanors and there are non-dangerous felonies. So, um, a, a creative defense attorney might show that the types of factors um, uh, in a low-level misdemeanor might be similar to the factors in a uh, non-violent felony. Think of, for instance, white-collar crime or something like that. So if there's really none of the dangers um, talked about in Lang, such as risk of loss of evidence, harm to others, further escape, then that may be the type of case someone could essentially wedge a, a little uh, gap in Santana and, and try to find an exception there. Yeah, I, I got the same sense. Uh, the majority was a little bit uh, mealy-mouthed when it came to trying to distinguish the rule regarding felons and the rule regarding misdemeanors. I think if the, the defense does try to put their foot into the door, we should probably respond by pointing out that, you know, the high court assumed that Santana treated fleeing felon cases as categorical, that is, as always presenting edges and circumstances allowing a warrantless entry. And also, it should be pointed out that the majority distinguished Santana specifically on the ground that Santana did not deal with fleeing misdemeanors, which would imply that, okay, when it's a felon, it's a different rule. And uh, the majority expressly declined to consider the defense argument that Santana didn't establish a categorical, a categorical rule, even one for fleeing felons. And then we should also point out, look, Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, that was, there was no ambiguity in that. He said the court's opinion does not disturb the long-settled rule that pursuit of a fleeing felon is itself an exigent circumstance justifying warrantless entry into the home. In other words, the police may make a warrantless entry into the home of a fleeing felon regardless of whether other exigent circumstances are, pre are, are, are present. So, at least for now, there's binding precedent, including California cases, that dictate that the officers have a right to make an entry into a home to pursue a fleeing felon in all circumstances. And I think officers can rely on that precedent uh, when making their decisions as to whether or not to follow someone. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the the precedent, both additional Supreme Court precedent and California rule, uh, I think that remains the rule. That the, the felony is the per se exception. So does the exigent circumstance exception, which allows entry when the officers are in high pursuit of a fleeing misdemeanor or a felon, require that the police simply have probable cause to arrest the suspect? Or must the officer be intending to make an actual physical arrest of the suspect? Well, I, I think that under the, the, the cases and even reading Lang, um, particularly Santana, 
Yes, I think the officer has to intend to make the arrest, and that is uh, the language from Santana is a suspect may not defeat an arrest which has been set in motion in a public place, and I think that's key language. So the actual arrest, the attempt for a physical arrest, mm-hmm. starts in a public place. Now, there could be an argument that even if there's an um, essentially the subjective intent of the officer at the time may not have been clarified, and he's seeking to contact the person, um, and he has probable cause, but you know, hasn't made a decision whether or not the officer may issue a citation or whatever, um, but then the person flees, then you have another crime and you have probable cause for flight, uh, either a 2800 or a 148, um, or if the person uses force, then it may be elevated to a felony like a PC-69. Okay. So do you think an officer can always enter a home whether or not it's a misdemeanor or a felony that the person is uh, suspected of having committed, if the suspect has been physically arrested, not when they're attempting to make the arrest, but when they've actually arrested the person and the person breaks away and then flees into a home. Well, Lang did not specifically address that situation, but I think under existing precedent, it would be, the answer would be yes. Um, And Justice Thomas, uh, as he indicated in his concurrence, certainly would say so. Um, That's a different scenario where the person is actually under arrest and then they escape. And that is part of what the court discussed and the briefing discussed at common law, that that would have been one of the traditional exceptions and it would not have – what the level of offense would have not have been an issue because it is the fact that someone has been arrested and then escaped. And that is one of the traditional exceptions that would allow uh, the constable to uh, break open a door and enter to uh, complete the arrest again. And, of course, as you sort of uh, pointed out earlier, uh, if someone is physically arrested and they use force or, or threat to escape from that arrest, now you've got a potential felony violation of Penal Code Section 69, so it really wouldn't make a difference whether or not there's a categorical rule which allows someone to arrest someone for a misdemeanor and follow them into the home if they've escaped from the actual arrest. Exactly, and I also think that you then automatically have the additional exigency of concern for further escape because Mm -hmm. the person has already physically escaped Uh, That's certainly probable cause to think they would continue to escape, and that would justify even a misdemeanor, I think. Now, does the exigent circumstance exception, which allows them to uh, make entry when they're in high pursuit of a fleeing misdemeanor, assuming the additional exigent circumstances are present, or a fleeing felon in all cases, apply when the suspect is merely fleeing a detention? In other words, where the police only have reasonable suspicion to temporarily detain the suspect? Well, I think not. The high court has never actually held that an officer may enter a home merely to effectuate a detention based on reasonable suspicion. And an arrest made uh, cannot be made without probable cause. So uh, essentially under both Lang and Santana, you would still need the probable cause to arrest. And most lower courts have declined to extend the Santana rationale to a pursuit based on reasonable suspicion begun in a public place which continues across the threshold of a home. Yeah, although I have to say um, it's not like overwhelming. There's actually a split in the case law where some courts, uh, several courts have held that, hey, if you've got reasonable suspicion uh, and you're going to detain someone and they're in a public place and then they 
and then they flee, that flight by its by itself would allow the officer seeking to make a detention to utilize the uh, Santana rationale to enter a home just as if he was had probable cause or she had probable cause to make the arrest. But uh, I think you're right. That's we shouldn't assume that that is ever going to be the case. That you're going to be able to follow someone in to a home based on just reasonable suspicion. Although, you know, thinking about the case-by-case analysis in the majority, you could actually conceive of a situation where the uh, the level of suspicion is a factor uh, that goes into the case-by-case analysis, much as the severity of the crime is a factor that goes into the decision. And you could probably craft an argument based on the majority opinion that, okay, well, I have reasonable suspicion that this person had committed a murder. And when you look at all the totality of circumstances, yeah, I could do it. And an officer could follow someone even when it was just based on a a need to engage in a detention based on reasonable suspicion. But, uh, of course, we're probably not going to have to worry about that situation very much. Why? (laughs) Well, essentially, just as in Lang, I think once that person flees, then you've got at least probable cause for a misdemeanor. So if the officers trying to effect a a lawful detention with reasonable suspicion, and that means the person, a reasonable person is not free to leave. So a reasonable person would not think they were free to leave. So the person's flight then, again, like Lang, triggers either a 148 or a 2800, uh, depending on the facts and the circumstances, uh, for failure to um, either yield to the officer or um, resisting and delaying arrest. Right. Do you think the police could enter a home in hot pursuit of a person who has committed an infraction? Now, it's not a misdemeanor or a felony, but just an infraction. Well, again, you get into the same kind of issues of uh, whether a 148 or a 2800 gets committed. But just just looking at the issue of an infraction, I think if we're looking at Lang is essentially creating a sliding scale where the misdemeanor is not automatically enough to trigger – Uh, that exigency, but a felony is, then certainly an infraction is going to be even lower on that sliding scale. So the infraction itself, probably not. Uh, But again, depending on the circumstances, you know, if the person, uh, the officer is trying to detain someone for having a headlight out and that person flees, then that person is committing a misdemeanor. So, Okay. Can the Fourth Amendment be violated if there exist exigent circumstances allowing an officer to enter a home in hot pursuit. But the entry itself is done in an unreasonable manner. Well, the the majority in Lang did not actually discuss that. But I think the answer is yes. The, um, the type of entry and, and what uh, occurs in the process of the entry, I think, absolutely is uh, something to consider. And that goes back to the Mascaro case, I think it was, uh, we discussed a little while ago, where a person had committed an infraction and the officers were kicking down doors and pepper spraying. Mm-hmm. So that was probably uh, part of the factor in you know, it, it not being a lawful uh, entry. Uh, so I think how the person or how the officer enters uh, absolutely will uh, be a factor. 
Of course, then that, there may be a different issue as to whether or not any evidence should be suppressed based on that. Yeah, I mean, you could see a situation where they're not going to allow an officer who purportedly is entering the home to seize an individual to go through portions of the home or start searching through areas where no person could potentially be be hidden. Uh, you would be bound by the same kind of limitations that they laid out in Maryland versus Bowie, uh, and then I think there was even some language in, and this comes from Justice Roberts' concurring. Uh, opinion. If you have a situation where it, the arrest is conducted in a manner that's so extraordinary, so unusually harmful to the person's privacy and physical interests, that, that it's going to be subject to, to greater review. Although, you know, one, one of the ways that a, uh, an analysis is going to be carried out when it comes to whether or not the arrest was conducted in a reasonable manner is whether or not the officers complied with not notice. And I, I know that we have decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court saying, hey, look, uh, yeah, knock notice is part of the reasonableness of a search and seizure, but a failure to comply with knock notice is not going to result in the suppression of, of evidence. So uh, it's going to be a, a, a rare situation where the way they conduct the search or the way they conduct the arrest is going to result in the suppression of evidence. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's going to be those outlier cases where an officer uh, uh, went overboard um, and those will probably be fairly obvious when we see broken doors for a, a, a taillight out, that kind of thing. <laughs> now, for purposes of the exigent circumstances exception, is entry onto the curtilage treated the same as entry into the home? In other words, would it make a difference if an officer entered a fenced-in backyard rather than the home itself in deciding whether or not the entry violated the Fourth Amendment? Well, under the uh, precedence of the Supreme Court and, and California courts, yeah, the, the curtilage is entitled to the same protections as the home itself. So uh, Chief Justice did highlight that in his concurrence as he, when he starts out. He asks, you know, what is an officer to do if chasing someone who has been assaulting a teenager and the suspect flees and jumps over to – a fence into his front yard and tells the officer to go away. Th those are the kind of uh, concerning aspects about laying and its application. Um, so I, I think the short answer is yes, the curtilage is protected in the same manner as the home. Uh, but I do think that in a practical uh, sense, th the courts may look at the level of intrusion as part of the case-by-case -case analysis of the existency at issue. So, you know, the risk of destruction of evidence goes up substantially if the suspect makes it through the front door, as does the risk uh, he or she may gain access to weapons or continue to flee out the back. So my sense is in, in doing the case-by-case -case analysis, I think that will be a factor because I think it will be less of a, an intrusion to grab someone in the curtilage before they get in the front door than once they've made it inside. Okay. But we got to assume – that at least on the surface, entry into the curtilage is also considered a violation of the Fourth Amendment Absolutely. unless there's the exception that, that applies. Yes. Now, how long – let me back up a little bit. It's, it's clear from the cases and, and from the discussion in, uh, in Lang that the exigent circumstance exception does not apply if the officer has time to get a warrant. Correct, Yes. So how long must obtaining a warrant take in order to meet the requirement under the exigent circumstances exception 
that there will that that there's insufficient time to obtain a warrant. Well, again, I think that's going to be very uh, fact driven. Um, and that's, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, that's going to be one of those practice points uh, for attorneys in court to make sure they make that record. So uh, the, the courts and I, I believe um, one of the earlier decisions uh, talked about, well, warrants these days can now uh, be gotten in as little as 15 minutes. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, you you get a, a warrant in 15 minutes, you've got yourself a 15-minute warrant. So it's going to have all <laughs> kinds of issues. Um, and so that's – perhaps in larger jurisdictions where there are more judges or depending on time of day, that may be real, realistic. But as an example in Lang, this occurred at 10 – the initial stop was at 10, 10 p.m. on a Friday night. Courthouse was closed. That means you're contacting an on-call judge. The, uh, the CHP officer is – perhaps 45 minutes away from his uh, home department. So to get a warrant, he either is going to be drafting that warrant sitting in his patrol car in front of a uh, home at night that he doesn't know if there are armed people inside, etc. Or he's going to drive back to his office and do a warrant, get it approved. So that would take hours. Um, And that, I think, is an important factor. Now, I think it's a different case if you're in a hospital with a suspect under arrest and seeking a blood draw and you already have a probable cause, that may be the type of warrant you can get that quick. But I think in most cases where these types of situations where it's a hot pursuit, it's going to take a lot of time to get that warrant. So prosecutors shouldn't necessarily assume that just because the potential dissipation of a blood alcohol level is not a sufficient exigency uh, just by itself to allow for a warrantless blood draw, that that exigency of the constantly decreasing blood alcohol level will not be uh, sufficient to create an exigency to allow an officer to enter a home uh, without a warrant. Exactly. And I think it was either uh, Birchfield or McNeely that was discussed. Uh, there not being a per se rule that uh, just because alcohol is involved that that automatically is a, uh, allows a warrantless blood draw. The same logic will apply to a hot pursuit case. And, and one of the factors to consider is does the officer actually have probable cause to believe the person is under the influence? So it may be different in a case where you have a suspect who has left a bar stumbling. There's a 911 report that this guy, you know, had 15 beers, was could barely open his door and drove away. And you have all the kinds of factors necessary to identify the, the person. That's going to be a different story where the officer already has that information. But in Lang, the officer really didn't have specific information that the person was under the influence. So those kinds of cases are going to be tougher. But where you do have that information that there's a you know good faith belief that the officer or the officer has a probable cause to believe the person is under the influence and you add the factor of the time that it would take to get a warrant to enter, then I think you are absolutely in that territory where you can uh, make a good faith argument that the exigency of loss of evidence of the alcohol burning off uh, should permit that. And and then there's the other factor of um, destruction of evidence argument by essentially uh, the drinking after driving defense, which is very common, where someone gets in their house, uh, takes a few swigs off of a vodka bottle and says, yes, I have a 0.26 uh, because I just you know, was swigging this alcohol when I got home. So um, I think those arguments can be made. 
All right. Now, in light of, of Lang, when a crime is a wobbler, so it could be prosecuted either as a felony or a misdemeanor, do you think that the categorical rule of the majority – I'm sorry, the, categor- the categor- categorical rule that would apply uh, to a felon uh, applies or the case-by-case rule that would apply to a misdemeanor applies? Well, I'll tell you, this is one of the big questions left unanswered uh, by Lang, and it is a concerning question. So there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Um, for instance, if you look at statute of limitations for a felon or for a wobbler, the felony rule applies. But um, if you look at the rule of lenity, uh, the generally you look at something in the the in favor of the defense uh, for ha- how things might go. Um, but I do think. A good um, argument can be made that if it's filed as a felony, uh, regardless of whether it's a wobbler or is even subsequently reduced as uh, by a judge pursuant to 17B or pursuant to a plea agreement, um, it, the felony rule should apply. I think one can make a good faith an argument that a wobbler, the felony rule should apply even if filed as a misdemeanor. But I think that's going to be a much tougher road uh, <laughs> to uh, to win on because I think any uh, good defense attorney is going to say, hey, yes, it's, it's a wobbler. You could have filed a felony or a misdemeanor, but prosecutor, you decided it was misdemeanor conduct and therefore the misdemeanor approach applies. Now, the California Supreme Court has stated that the United States Supreme Court has indicated that entry into a home based on exigent circumstances requires probable cause, not just to arrest. In other words, not just probable cause to arrest. You you have to have uh, probable cause, if you're the officer, to believe that the entry is justified by one of the exigent circumstances, such as the imminent destruction of evidence or the need to prevent a suspect's escape. Do you think this requirement has been changed in any way by Lang? Well, Lang did not specifically address what the standard is uh, for determining that uh, exigency, the co-exigency. But I think there's a, a fair argument that it, it does change it, and, and including um, going back to Santana, because uh, you know in both cases they're talking about the risk of these other events. They don't talk about probable cause to, to believe that's going to occur. In fact, in Santana, uh, not only did they allow the entry into the home, but they also found that the risk of destruction of evidence permitted a more uh, expansive search of the home once the officers did enter uh, to look for the, the drugs and the marked bills um, that had been uh, passed uh, during an undercover drug deal. So um, I, I do think that the... Um, there's a good faith argument that there's no requirement for probable cause under U.S. Supreme Court Fourth Amendment law and pursuant to Prop 8, uh, our uh, review in 1538.5 motions is limited to uh, the the Fourth Amendment rules as declared by our U.S. Supreme Court. So I think there's a, a good faith argument to make that there's no requirement for probable cause, just a good um, articulation of the risk. Okay. Now, I, uh, that it's going to be a tough road to hoe because we do have California Supreme Court authority saying that 
there has to be that probable cause. But I mean, the, the, the door is open uh, a little bit underlying for us to, to argue in that situation where perhaps there isn't probable cause to believe that there's going to be a destruction of evidence or an escape uh, and, and something less than that uh, to say that there doesn't need to be that level uh, because of lack. All right. Now, will the good faith exception, which prevents the exclusion of evidence when officers are acting upon established precedent, save our cases where there's been an entry into the, into the home before Lang issued, where pursuit would have been lawful under the existing law, but, not, but might not have been lawful under the rule as laid out in Lang? It certainly should. The, the state of the law in California has been for over 30 years uh, under People v. Lloyd that such an entry was permissible. Um, it was also a split in authority with other states and federal circuits. So certainly we want law enforcement following the law and the law at the time permitted it. So when officers are acting on existing law um, – and acting on it in good faith, then the whole purpose of the exclusionary rule, which is to deter unlawful conduct uh, by officers, um, and and the rule is supposed to apply where it's flagrant and intentional, um, it makes no sense to apply the exclusionary rule in that situation. Um, and I would point out, again, Justice Thomas's concurrence, where uh, he asserts that the exclusionary rule shouldn't apply at all in pursuit cases. So really there's two arguments to be made. One which definitely should apply. I mean if an officer entered a home and it would have been proper before Lang in reliance on existing California appellate authority, that's a slam dunk. The evidence is not going to be suppressed. Absolutely. Uh, but there's also a secondary argument that derives from Justice Thomas's. Uh, concurring opinion that, hey, look, we just don't apply the exclusionary rule when someone is relying on the exigent circumstances uh, exception to enter a home without a warrant. It may still be a violation of the Fourth Amendment, but it's not the kind of violation that would uh, or should require exclusion. Exactly. And, and I think both arguments should be made in any case uh, where someone's dealing with this type of situation. Yeah, and prosecutors should consider citing to those cases, which we mentioned in our accompanying IPG, where a court has held where, uh, where there's probable cause to arrest a defendant. Since the officer has seen the defendant flee the crime scene, the fact that the police illegally entered the defendant's uh, home to make a warrantless arrest doesn't invalidate the arrest and doesn't require suppression of any post-arrest statement uh, the defendant made at the police station. I mean, that's existing law. Like, you can enter a home, the entry can be unlawful, but that doesn't mean that once you make the arrest and you bring the, the person out, that their statements are going to be suppressed. They, they are not going to be suppressed. Right. Now, Robert, are, uh, are you going to be assisting or handling the case on remand in the Court of Appeal? Well, I, I will say that uh, I did uh, have a very good working relationship with the supervising uh, deputy attorney general who handled the case originally, and I certainly will be reaching out to her uh, once the case is back in the first district. And I will uh, want to find out what the attorney general's position will be uh, if they're 
position is uh, what our position would be. I, I think we'll uh, let the Attorney General's office handle it. However, if they uh, decide to concede or, or take some other uh, approach, then uh, I certainly will be asking uh, my office to consider attempting to intervene and present our position. All right. So any predictions on what is going to happen with the case uh, of Lang on remand to the Court of Appeal? Well, if if the court follows the the law, then the court should uh, still affirm based on the officer's good faith adherence to what was then existing California law. So that is certainly my hope. Um, and there there may be some additional arguments that some of the uh, exigencies, um, co-exigencies would apply, such as the uh, – potential for further flight. Um, I, I think we do not have sufficient evidence to uh, to show that the officer had probable cause to believe that Lang was under the influence at the time he drove into the garage. Mm -hmm. That happened after the garage door opened. Uh, but certainly um, the fact that the officer hadn't even identified who the driver was at the time mm -hmm. uh, created additional issues and concerns for flight and, and uh, the inability to identify who the offender was. All right. Well, uh, we will keep our fingers crossed for you. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much for not only carrying the load on this case, I know that you, you, you have, but also for driving down here from Sonoma and uh, vastly enhancing this IP well, podcast. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure is mine. Um, this has been a case I've been involved with for uh, yeah, three years now, and, and from the very first, it was one of those very interesting cases that you wonder what's going to happen on. And, and it's gone much further and, uh, than I ever expected, but uh, here we are. All right. Well, thanks again, Robert. Thank you.